Amen. Praise the Lord. We'll turn in your Bibles this evening to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to share something that's on my heart about being reconciled unto health. We'll start reading in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from verse 17. Paul's saying, talking about the new birth, he said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. One translation says a new species of being. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We know that all things that have become new are spiritual things. Physical things, natural things don't pass away. We look just the same before we get saved as after we get saved. But he's talking about spiritually we become new. Verse 18, and all things are of God. Most other translations translate, and this is the work of God. Who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Let me talk to you about the word reconciled and reconciliation for just a minute. The word reconciled literally means to change mutually. Now, the word reconciliation, I might as well go ahead and tell you about that one. The word reconciliation is a a variation of the word reconcile, and it means to exchange. Now, we understand exchange very well from our monetary system and buying and selling and so forth. If you go to the store and you want to buy a, uh, well, anything, any product, whether it's clothing or, or whatever it is, present for somebody, gift for yourself or just something you need, whatever it is, you understand that an exchange is going to take place. You're going to take the money that's in your pocket or in your possession before you enter the store and exchange it for whatever it is you want to buy. Now, the word reconciliation means to mutually change. That means there has to be the exchange for something to take place. For example, you wouldn't expect to go to the store and pick out something off the shelf and go to the counter and then let you keep your money and take the product or the the item with you. You understand that you have to give up something to get whatever it is you want to get. That's what it means to mutually change. That means both sides exchange something for what the other one has. And at the end of the transaction, they lose what they started with and gain what the other one started with. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm talking about, don't you? I didn't say that very well, but very few things I do say very well. So where it's talking about he has given unto us or has reconciled us to himself, it literally means there was an exchange that was made. Now, the context of this is in verse 17 where he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. In other words, for somebody to be made a new creature, become this new creation or this new species of being, there had to be an exchange. Something had to be given up for something else to be obtained. Well, the old things passed away and all things become new. We know those are spiritual things, as I said before. So what was given up was your old nature, your sin nature, the nature of your spirit that was separated from God and alienated from God, as Paul said. And what you gained was righteousness, the righteousness of Christ Jesus. But there had to be an exchange. You couldn't become righteous without giving up your old nature. That's what he's trying to say. This is the work of God for there to be a mutual change in both parties. 
who has reconciled us. This is the work of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of exchange is the good news of the gospel. Meaning something has already been paid for you to exchange your old nature for the righteousness of God. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. One translation, I think the Amplified Translation says, but canceling them out. And has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. In other words, the whole message of, of, of the work of Jesus is about an exchange that took place. Now, Paul talks about this exchange in a couple of different ways. He, talks about, he uses the word in one place of propitiation. Well, nobody knows what propitiation means. It's sometimes translated mercy seat, but what it really comes down to is substitution. Jesus was our substitute. If there was not a substitution made, then there would never be any way for man to come to God. I know you know this. I know this is elementary, but it's very important that we talk about it in these terms because healing is in the same category. And we'll get around to, to showing you what we're, what we're, where we're trying to go, what we're headed at for. But here it says the word of reconciliation has been given unto us. The good news is the exchange has already been made. The price has been paid for the exchange to be made. Jesus paid a price to get what you got. Or get what you have, get what you were, so that you could get what he gave, which was righteousness. So it goes further, and it says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did by, beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. In other words, live up to the exchange that was made. Live up to the exchange. For, and here's the exchange that he's talking about that he was referring to in the previous verses. For he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. In other words, Jesus was righteous. But Jesus became sin. That's literally what it means when it says he made him to be sin. There was a change of nature. He became sin for us. He didn't have it to start with. It had to be given to him or placed upon him. For this purpose, for the exchange to be made, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, let me ask you a question. First of all, how many of you believe that verse is true? Do you believe it's true because you experience it? Or do you believe it's true because you always feel righteous? Or do you believe it because the word says so? Well, we're left with option number two. Because we don't always feel righteous, do we? And that's one of the errors that the devil tries to beat us up about. He'll take what the word says and show us how we don't seem to measure up. And tries to bring us under condemnation. But whether we feel righteous or not, the fact that the word of God cannot lie. God can't lie. And since he said we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When we made Jesus the Lord of our lives, that exchange took place. Whether we ever feel righteous or not. We know that's true, don't we? Some people never experience it. Some people will never experience the feeling or the satisfaction of righteousness where others will. And it doesn't have anything to do with how good you live. It has to do with how strong you believe. 
Every child of God, no matter how righteous you think they are, no matter how saintly you think they are, no matter how strong a believer you think they are, or how close to God they are, every believer has found thoughts in their mind and actions portrayed in their life that their heart condemns. Things that they never wanted to do, things that they never wanted to think, things they never wanted to say. Every believer experiences that. But does that stop them from being righteous in your eyes? Does that stop us from recognizing that somebody is strong in faith or a strong believer? No. But it might hinder them. Because the devil doesn't bother you about somebody else's condition. Only your own. So whereas we may look at somebody else as being righteous and walking in the righteousness of God and being a strong believer and, and holier than us. I hate to use that term, but you know what I mean. They may be dealing with the same thing that you deal with that keeps you from thinking you're as holy as they are. Because you can't ever see what's going on on the inside of somebody. But the reality is this. Whether we ever feel it, whether we ever are satisfied with our own earthly experience, The truth is, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, you are the righteousness of God in him. Now, let me ask you another question about that. Does that mean someday you're going to be righteous? Most of the church world thinks that. Most of the church world thinks that this is a promise of things to come, that someday when we get to heaven, then we'll be righteous. When we escape this earthly body, then we'll be righteous. They think this is relegated Or postponed until we come to heaven. Get to heaven. But that's not what it says. It says we're the righteousness of God now. So it's easy to see how some people in the body of Christ. Maybe most of the people in the body of Christ. I'm not sure. But a lot anyway. Are looking to something that's already theirs now. Because of an exchange that's already been made. And hoping for it to be theirs in the future. Will that ever make it theirs? No. There's a lot of people going to, get, going to be very disappointed because when they get to heaven, they're going to realize they're the same person as they were here. There won't be the hindrances of the flesh. But you don't change because you go to heaven. You don't become a new spirit when you get there. You don't get new thoughts when you get there. You'll have the same mind, the same spirit, the same soul. You will be you, only in a redeemed body. I'm of the opinion, and I I can't say this dogmatically, but I'm of the opinion that there's going to be less of a change when we receive our redeemed bodies than we expect there to be. We built up this idea that the problem is the flesh. But the Bible says the flesh is your source of authority. It's the means whereby you have authority here on the earth. That's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. So he could have a flesh and blood body. So that he could exercise the authority on the earth that was given to man. So I'm of the opinion. And this is just an opinion. I'm of the opinion that when we get our redeemed bodies. We'll notice a change. But it won't be the change that most people are expecting. You won't be any more righteous in a redeemed body than you are in the one you've got now. Because you will be you. 
Now, with that in mind, turn back with me to Romans chapter 4. I've always been interested, and I'll read verse 21, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 again while you're turning. For he, speaking of God, has made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The word made is in that verse twice. In other words, to the same degree that Jesus was made sin, you were made righteous. Now, again, a lot of the church world looks at that as sin was just laid upon Jesus, but he didn't really become sin. And I understand the problem that some people have with them, with the, the misunderstanding that if Jesus was made sin, then somehow in their mind, then he stopped being holy. But as we talked about this morning, and I hope you were here, if you weren't, I encourage you to get the, the tape or the CD or download the podcast or whatever you do. The Bible talks about Jesus as a sin offering, and the sin offering is always holy. Jesus was always holy on the cross. Never stopped being holy. And anything that came in contact with the sin offering was made holy by that contact. Jesus was holy on the cross. But something had to pay the price and do the work of the scapegoat, had to pay the price for the judgment of sin. The Old Testament sacrifice was two parts. One was the the lamb that was slain as the sin offering, which was holy. And the other was the, the lamb that was chosen by lots, rolling dice or casting lots, whatever that turned out to be. Where the high priest laid his hands on the head of that goat and transferred figuratively in the Old Testament, literally in Jesus' case, transferred the sins of the people upon him. It was led out into the wilderness where the judgment of God fell upon it. Well, if we just say that sin was laid on Jesus, but he didn't become sin, then we have to conclude that you've not really been made righteous. Righteousness has just been kind of laid upon you. But if that's true, then you're not a new creature. You're not a new species of being. No, in fact, the opposite is just, it has to be true. In order for you to have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, in order for you to have freedom to walk into the presence of God boldly as a child of God, a joint heir with Christ, then that means he had to be made sin. He had to become sin itself so that he could pay the price for it. Because you have become righteousness itself. Now in Romans chapter 4, you found that yet? Romans chapter 4, it tells us about Abraham. I want you to notice something it says about him. We'll start reading in verse 17. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations before him. A better translation of that is likened to him. It's talking about Abraham and his attitude about God, what he began to believe and how he began to operate. Before him or like unto him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. In other words, Abraham came to the place where he believed something very strongly. He believed in the two characteristics of God that are identified here by the Holy Ghost. That God makes dead things alive. Well, you remember the promise that was made to Abraham, the promise of having a child when he was 100 years old. His body was dead in that respect. As far as reproduction and having children was concerned, both his and Sarah's bodies were dead. So something, literally someone, is going to have to perform a spectacular work, not just supernatural, but a spectacular work, to make something dead in his body live again. 
to make a function of his body that has been dead for years alive again. That's why it tells us about God's characteristic of quickening the dead. It's good for us to know because anything that's not working correctly in your body can and shall be quickened by the same Father. So the two characteristics it is saying about God that that, uh, Abraham believed and took stock in. First is that God quickens the dead. And second, that he calls things that be not as though they are. Literally, though they were. Who, against hope, verse 18, Abraham had no natural hope. There was nothing in his physical body that he could say, yeah, things are getting better. He had no reason to hope for things to get better. Aging deteriorates things instead of renewing them. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be. Now please notice verse 18. I want to take verse 18 apart for a little bit. It's saying he had no natural, anything natural to, to hope in. If he's going to hope in something he's going to have to find it outside of his physical being. Well he did. He believed in hope. In other words, he got his hope from what God said. Now notice the progression. He said, the Bible says that he believed in hope that he might become the father of nations. Now why would he believe or why would he hope for to become the father of nations? Well, it tells us that God had told him, so shall thy seed be. Now without taking the time to look, you can if you want to. In Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17 are the two times where it's talking about God appeared to him in these verses. In chapter 15, God appears to him and says, Fear not, Abram. I am your exceedingly great reward. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Abraham questioned God. He said, What about the child you promised me? I haven't had him. So God shows him. The word of the Lord comes to him and God shows him the stars of the sky. He says, do you know how many there are? Well, obviously there's more than you can number. He said to Abraham, this is chapter 15 of Genesis verse 5. He said, so shall thy seed be. Now let me ask you a question. So shall thy seed be. Is that something that existed then or would exist in the future? Has to be future, isn't it? So shall thy seed be. He didn't say, so is thy seed. He said, so shall thy seed be. So Abraham is believing for something to occur. He's believing for something that hasn't happened to become a reality. And that's what verse 18 is all about. Verse 18 is, he didn't have any natural hope to to become the father of nations. He didn't have any natural hope for his seed to be like the stars of the sky. So he had to get some hope. He had to gain or obtain hope from some other source. Well, the source that he obtained hope from was the word of God, where God said, this is how your seed will be, like the stars of the sky. But folks, let me suggest something to you, remind you of something you already know. Hoping for something to come is not faith. Now, faith has to have hope as a foundation. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So I don't mean to denigrate hope in any way whatsoever. But hope doesn't receive from God. Hope sets the goal. And the goal is to have the child that he's promised. 
And for that child to have children and that child, those children to have children and those children to have children so that his seed becomes the stars of the sky. But just hoping that something's going to happen doesn't bring it into reality for Abraham. It tells us the source of the hope that he received. It tells us the foundation of the faith that he exercised and Abraham is considered to be the father of faith. But I think a lot of times we look at this uncritically and we recognize that Abraham is the father of hope well thank God that he obtained hope but that's not what we're supposed to emulate that's not the way that we're supposed to emulate the actions of Abraham so that we receive from God there was another step involved that other step is referred to in verse 17 as it is written I have made thee the father of nations. If Abraham believed in the hope that he would become the father of nations, then why in the world did God have to appear to him again two chapters later, chapter 17 of Genesis, and tell him, verse 5, I'm changing your name from Abram to Abraham. For I have made thee the father of nations. Now remember the word made that we looked at over in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And remember the context of verse 21 is about the mutual exchange. The exchange of one condition or one state to another state. When God appears to Abram and changes his name to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, he's saying it's a different ballgame now. No more is it something for you to hope for. Something for you to hope to be done in the future. Now I have made thee the father of nations. I have made thee. God's changing tenses. Now he's not saying what Abraham will be. He's saying what Abraham already is. Now don't get me wrong. The chapter 17 experience, Genesis 17 experience was necessary and needful. God said, look look at the stars of the sky and see if you can number them. That's the way your seed, your children, your descendants will be. It goes on in the next verse and says, So Abraham believed God and counted it un- and God counted it unto him as righteousness. Believing always results in righteousness. Believing is a righteous act. But if that was sufficient, then why did God appear to him again? Why did God have to change his name? If believing in the future action of his children being like the stars of the sky was sufficient to receive, then why did God change his name and God appear to him and say, here's what's happened. I have now made thee the father of nations. See, if you look at chapter 4 of Romans in verse 17, it talks about that Abraham became like God in some ways. Well, how do you become like God in quickening the dead? Is there any way you can gain power to quicken the dead? Any way you can gain power to quicken dead things in your life? Well, we can speak the word, but we have to say the word does it, not us. The one thing that he became like God is the last characteristic that's spoken of in verse 17. He began to call things that were not as though they were. He began to call things that were not as though they were. When Abraham started using the new name, 
he's calling himself the father of nations. He's acknowledging that God has already done something, not that God's going to do something, but that God has already done something. And there was an exchange made, an exchange from the old person, the old Abram that was looking for children to come to the new Abraham who's been made the father of nations. So it goes on to tell us how he operated in this faith for this new condition and being not weak in faith. Verse 19, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Let me ask you a question. What was he strong in faith about? Is he glorifying God? We know he's strong in faith because he glorified God. Is he glorifying God because his seed would be like the stars of the sky? Or because he's been made the father of nations? Well, we know he received from God. We know faith is what receives. We know hope is that which looks to the future. And I think a lot of us trip over the fact that the promises of God... Can be misapplied. The promises of God concerning healing, for example. The Bible says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we're healed. A lot of us look at that as to say we will be healed, or we can be healed, or healing can be ours. But that's not what it says. That's not the place to put our faith. Our faith is to be placed in the fact that there was an exchange. Jesus bore our sicknesses and took our infirmities. He was made sickness. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. The original Hebrew on that is, He has made him sick. So it's just as real and just as true according to the scripture that Jesus was made sickness and disease. Just as much as he was made sin. There was just as much a transference. Of sickness and disease as there was sin. You have a right to claim to be just as much a new creature in Christ. Physically. Where healing is concerned. As you do spiritually where righteousness is concerned. Because Jesus was made both. Jesus was made both. Now, the, the stripes that Jesus took on his back, that's a fascinating thing to me. Because there's no place in the Old Testament that says there's a penalty for sickness that if you'll be beaten, allow yourself to be beaten, then you can be healed. Why, was the, why were the stripes that Jesus took on his back, we understand that to be when Pilate beat him before the crucifixion. Why did that pay the price for sickness? There's no indication whatsoever in any scripture, in any form. There's no hint of anything in the Old Testament scriptures. That a beating or suffering a beating has any connection to healing from sickness and disease. There's no indication that the shedding of blood will heal sickness and disease. Lepers in the Old Testament were commanded to shed blood. 
or to offer a sacrifice of an animal, a lamb or a ram or a bullock or whatever it was, to be healed. They were to make a sacrifice when they were healed. But healing from sickness and disease didn't come by sacrifice in the Old Testament. We know that when Jesus was beaten, he was not made sickness. Because that would have been before the cross if he was made sickness. And that means he was not a holy sin offering on the cross. So it spoke of something yet to come. Had to. It spoke of something yet to come. It spoke of the work that Jesus would do after he died on the cross. After his physical body died on the cross. And his spirit took upon itself the sins and the sicknesses of the world as the scapegoat. And was led out into the wilderness. A land cut off from the living, Isaiah 53 says. Where the judgment of God fell upon him. The wrath was, of God was fully poured out upon him, the scripture says. My point is very simply this, folks. If you're believing God, that because Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, you can be healed, you're missing the point. If you, you can glorify God all week long. You can glorify God for the rest of your life. That because Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, you will be healed. And it won't work. But if you turn it around and begin to glorify God, that because Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, you are the healed of God. Then see, that puts it on an even par with Second Corinthians 5.21. Jesus was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in, in Christ Jesus. Jesus was made sickness who knew no sickness, that you would be made the healed of God. That's what Abraham began to believe God for. That's what Abraham began to glorify God about, that he had been made the father of nations. How do we know? Because he used a new name. He used the name that God gave him. Which meant something has already been done. But guess what? When you make Jesus the Lord of your life, God gives you a new name too. We're known as Christians. Christ ones. What does that mean? That means he was made sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You wouldn't think about worshiping God and glorifying God because someday you'll be righteous. That just doesn't even feel right. That contradicts the scripture. But you would worship God because you've been, you've already been made the righteousness of God. Well, then why do we think it's different where healing is concerned? Why would we worship God because we can be healed or will be healed or God's going to do something for us in the future instead of recognizing that in the same way Jesus was made sin for us, Jesus was made sickness on our behalf. And we've been made the healed of God. Do you see the difference? It's all the difference in the world. It's all the difference in the world. I've never yet seen. I've seen a lot of people die believing God. What I mean by that is I've seen people die making confessions concerning healing and what Jesus did for them. But I've never seen anybody die confessing that they are the healed of God. 
And if I look back at the people that failed to receive, and I'm not throwing rocks. I've missed it in some things myself. We all have. But if I look back at the people that failed to receive, even the ones that I thought were in faith, when I examine more closely where they were, they were believing for God to do something for them. Now, they were believing for the right reason. Because Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, they were believing that healing would come. But I've never seen anybody fail to receive that believed that healing had already come. They were the healed of God. Folks, if the Bible is true, you're as much the healed of God as you are the righteousness of God. Jesus took them both equally. He bore them both, sin and sickness, to accomplish the work of the scapegoat. You are just as much the healed of God as you are the righteousness of God. We know we have to accept the righteousness of God by faith because we don't always feel like it. We don't always live up to it. But that doesn't change the fact, even when we stumble and fall, even when we commit sin and have to confess it and ask God for forgiveness, we know that that does not change the nature, our nature, from being the righteousness of God because the righteousness of God was made unto us not because of our actions, not because we felt like it, not because we did something to earn it. It was made unto us because Jesus made an exchange. He made the same exchange concerning sickness. You're not the sick believing for healing. You're the healed of God by the blood of Jesus. You're not the sick Christian believing for healing. You are the healed of God because Jesus made an exchange on your behalf. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to glorify you because we are the healed of God. We're not looking for healing. Healing has already been accomplished. Just as you changed Abraham's name, Abram's name to Abraham, to acknowledge that he had been made the father of nations. I'm sure he didn't feel like the father of nations. But it was true because you said so. In the same way, You said, by Jesus' stripes, we were healed. That means we are healed now. That means we are the healed of God. So we glorify you that we are the healed of God through the work of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. It's so good to be healed, Father. It's so good to be the healed of God. We're not the healed of God because we think so. We're not the healed of God because we feel like it. We're not the healed of God because circumstances change in our body. We're the healed of God because your word cannot lie. You said that we are the healed of God. We glorify you because that's true. We worship you, Father. We magnify you. And from this point forward, we will declare ourselves to be the healed of God. Not looking for healing, not even believing for healing, but the healed of God. Thank you, Father, for making it good in our lives. Because your word is true. Say this after me. According to God's word. I am the healed of God. Jesus took my infirmities. And bore my sicknesses. And by his stripes. I was healed. If I was healed. When he took stripes upon his back. Then I am healed now. 
Therefore, I declare that I am the healed of God. I will always be the healed of God. I will never cease to be the healed of God because Jesus did an eternal work. I am the healed of God. Amen. Folks, you know in your heart that has to be true. That's exactly what the word says. That has to be true. Thank God we're the healed of God. Amen? Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. God bless you. Have a great week.